0: Well, it's good to be with you today. Last evening I enjoyed the hospitality of Alan and Teresa where we dined on an Italian soup that I don't quite have words to use to describe how delicious this was. She said I was a guinea pig. She was going to try out a recipe and I want to be a guinea pig over and over again. (laughs) It It was delicious and what kept me from having thirds was the manners that I recalled from my grandmother and my mother. And so I said, I better not, or I would have have indulged more. Of course, the conversation was even more exquisite, ranging from the astros (laughs) to our sons and grandchildren and cats and church and God and our hopes and our dreams. And this is what church does. It practices hospitality with one another and with the community because we and all people are hungry, hungry to be welcomed and accepted and treated with kindness as we wish to treat others. And on the drive back from the Kramers last night, the Houston skyscraper, accented with Christmas colors, and then the crescent moon that was hanging low on the western horizon. And I thought, Houston is a beautiful place this time of year, and the people that I'm coming to know at 1548 are more beautiful yet. And Bill, your kindness, our gifted worship leader, I don't know if you recognize that last song that we sang. That, That was composed by Bill. Uh, who's taken hymns long forgotten or new hymns and brought, brought them before us, as He will at the close of our sermon today. Christmas, as you know, is eight days away. You know that, of course, because you're busy planning for this Christmas, and you're remembering Christmas's past. As I do, my most vivid memory of Christmas happened 60 years ago, 60 years ago. It was Christmas, 1963. And my mother, as was our family tradition, would host Christmas at our home, and all the extended family would gather as we did on Christmas Day, 1963. And at noon, the family began to arrive. There was grandpa and grandma and my older cousins, and the lumbering Aunt Arlene, and my nervous Aunt Gladys, and Uncle Carol. Uncle Carol, not a man that anyone would describe as spiritual in any way. And he arrived at our home, and he positioned himself in my father's brown chair. And with dinner still cooking, he lit up his Salem menthol and he accepted his first glass of Christmas wine, and he began his banter, informing us that the Bible says that we're supposed to drink wine. This is the same Uncle Carol who once declared that Moses was the greatest of all the apostles, and God God told him that he would live to be 80. God told you? Yes, he said. It's in the Bible. You ought to look it up. And all of his claims were beyond my reach to dispute until that day, Christmas Day, 1963, when Uncle Carol, sipping his Christmas wine in the middle of a lengthy monologue, claimed that James is in the Old Testament. And I glanced up, and I interrupted him, and I said, oh, no, Uncle Carol, the book of James is in the New Testament. He said, I'll bet it's in the Old Testament, he says four bits says that James is in the Old Testament. And so, I leaped to my feet, and I raced to my bedroom, and I retrieved my Sunday School Bible, and I returned, and I opened it up before him to the table of contents, and I pointed, New Testament, James. He said, well, looks like Uncle Carol was wrong. Now, how much do I owe you? And then he raised his voice so that my mother in the kitchen could hear. How much did we bet? And then he opened his little black coin purse, and he pulled out two quarters that he handed to me. And at dinner, as he was passing the scalp, potatoes, and ham, now deep into his fourth glass of Mogan David, he used a phrase I'd never heard before he said, filthy lucre. And when he said it, he glanced at me. And then he added, that's in the Bible too, David, why don't you go look it up? And it was at that moment, on Christmas Day, 1963, that I first came to understand that people are more apt to use Scripture for their own purposes than to allow God to use Scripture to shape them for God's purposes. I spent the week, like you, thinking about Christmas and preparing for it and remembering. And I was in our little apartment seated next to the Christmas tree this week when I noticed two sets of packages, one set of packages wrapped in burgundy with snowmen and candy canes. And the others wrapped in cream-colored paper with floating angels carrying long gold ribbons, saying, good tidings of great joy. And I'd never seen that wrapping paper before, and so I called to my wife who was in the other room, May, and I said, who are these presents from? And she called back, and she said, they're from us. And then I asked, who are they for? And I forget what she said because I was too busy thinking about her first answer, that I knew nothing of the gifts that I was giving. <laughs> Christmas is a complicated holiday, and many, many think that Christmas is as much an American holiday as it is a religious holiday, and it's complicated in the church too. Some of you may have had associations with churches that ruled against Christmas. It's true, they exist these churches emphasize that we don't know exactly when Jesus was born. He might have been born in the spring. They said that Christmas is a compromise holiday created by some ancient emperor to appease the pagans. And they said, those three wise men, we three kings of Orient are, but they're not numbered in the Bible, and they don't arrive until Jesus is about two, and they don't get anywhere near a manger. And, of course, the larger problem was the blending of the religious and the secular holiday and if you've got trouble with the magi from the east at the nativity scene, surely you're troubled with the lawn display here in Houston that has Mary and Joseph and Santa Claus in the sleigh that's being led by by Rudolph, and Jesus, baby Jesus is holding the reins. I tell you, it's a complicated holiday. We had friends who were the biggest fans of Christmas that I've ever known. Their names were Gerald and Jeanie. Gerald and Jeanie started planning and decorating for Christmas in the month of June. And by December, everything was wall-to-wall Christmas. Their celebration knew no bounds because they had both come from anti-Christmas churches, <laughs> and they spent their life making up for lost time. And Gerald's dad was a preacher an anti-Christmas preacher in the area who maybe was 20 miles from us and our church. But one Sunday, Christmas fell upon Sunday, and Gerald and Jeannie and their two little girls attended Christmas services on Sunday at his father's church. And of course, there was no mention of Christmas at church. The word was not used, but what hurt them the most was the song selection. The song selected was number 511 out of the hymnal, the Stamps-Baxter classic, Seeking the Lost, Yes, Kindly Entreating, number 511. But what was heartbreaking for Gerald and Jeannie was that the song sat between Silent Night, number 510, and number 512, O Little Town of Bethlehem, which they did not sing, and it broke their heart, and their spirit was numbed. So these are all of the memories and the confusing conflicts and complications that I bring to Christmas, and that is why this morning our our sermon is a little different look. It's going to be called Christmas from Another Perspective. Mary, what do you have to say? We'll turn in our Bibles to a passage that is typically overlooked this time of year, though it's very much part of the Christmas story. It's Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 55. I say it's overlooked because even Linus in Charlie Brown's Christmas, who quotes lengthy sections from the Gospel of Luke, even Linus doesn't mention Luke 1, verses 39 to 55. But listen to it now. It was at this time that Mary went in a hurry to the hill country, to a city of Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby within her leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And Elizabeth cried out with a loud voice, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. And now has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me. Behold, the sound of your greeting reached my ears, and the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. And then Mary... Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For God has regard for the humble state of God's servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is God's name. And God's mercy is from generation to generation toward those who revere God. God has done mighty things. God has scattered those who were proud in their thoughts and hearts. God has brought down from their thrones and exalted those who are humble. God has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. God has given help to God's people in remembrance of God's mercy just as God spoke to our foreparents, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. And Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months, and then she returned to her home. That part that Mary speaks in what I've just read is called the Magnificat, so named for the first words in Mary's poem there in verse 46. My soul exalts the Lord, it says, makes great in Latin, and thus the phrase, the Magnificat. It's a text about the birth of Jesus. It's a text you don't offer here, but I'm going to argue this morning. I won't argue. I'll try to convince you by story. That when we talk and we think of Christmas, what we've just read is true north. For the mighty one has done great things for me, she said. And holy is his name. God has done mighty deeds. God has scattered those who were proud. God has brought down rulers from their thrones and exalted those who were humble. God has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. To be God's people means to live in the world that God has intended for us, the world that is envisioned for us in Scripture governed by the stories and narratives that the Bible presents to us to live into. Dare we live in the world that is envisioned in the Gospel of Luke, in the story of Jesus' birth recorded in this Gospel. Christmas from another perspective, what did Mary say? Demands that we live as a community, a community that is unique to the vision of God. To be God's people is to live in the world envisioned in Scripture. To be, covered, to be governed by its stories and narratives that the Bible hands us is so problematic. Problematic for many reasons. For one, we're not always familiar with the biggest themes in Scripture, what Jesus might call the weightier matters or the greatest or second greatest commandment. And second, we're knee-deep in competing stories and challenging truths. I mentioned the Burgundy presence and Uncle Carol again. And then when we open this story, it's so interesting, and it grabs our attention, and then we run with it. The previous story and the account that we read tells about about Gabriel, the angel, the same angel that had, had visited Zacharias, visits Mary foretelling that Zacharias and his gray-haired elderly wife Elizabeth would give birth to a baby they would call John, and we know him as John the Baptist. And the same Gabriel appears to Mary that she will give birth to the Messiah. The conversation between Gabriel and Zacharias, between Gabriel and Mary, are interesting and dynamic and so lively. We get our expectations high and we're off and running. We might ex- what might you expect when two women, two women who are pregnant, two women who are pregnant and are relatives, what would they do when they got together? Hmm, they could go to Starbucks. Talk about swollen feet and maternity wear. They could be walking through the mall, sifting through baby clothes that Mothers Are Us. We could see them both in Elizabeth's living room talking about the angel. What did he look like? What did Gabriel look like to you? Now tell me again, what did he say? But instead, we hear that when Mary arrives at Elizabeth's Judean country home to visit her older cousin, Elizabeth's baby leaps in her womb it almost sounds staged. And when I quote, Elizabeth standing next to Mary cries out with a loud voice, blessed are you among women. But then Mary comes to the top of the altar, the top step where it's absolutely dark. And one light shines down on Mary and she turns toward us and she's holding the poem that she's going to speak from. And with poetry, She says these words. My soul exalts the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For God has regard for the humble state of God's servant. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and God's name is holy. Mary sounds like, when she first begins, the athlete after the game who can't believe the coach called her number, like the surprised honoree who's won the great award. I can't believe this. I I don't really deserve this. That's what she sounds like at the very beginning. But take a look at her face take a look at her face, and I'm not talking about the white statuary that we're so often accustomed to seeing in Mary, and I'm not talking about the serene Mary and the infant child at the nativity scene. I'm talking about her face at the moment she says these words, "'God has done mighty deeds. God has scattered those who were proud. God has brought down rulers from their thrones and exalted those who were humble.'" God has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. It's almost as if we can see her with her head lifted up, with her arms outstretched, her palms turned upward, perhaps appearing to turn her attention to God. Maybe we see that. But what I know what we hear, if we were listening carefully, was the cadence of her poem, the poem's rhythm, the unmistakable sound of the reversal of fortunes. God scatters the proud, brings down the rulers, sends away empty-handed the rich, while God exalts the humble, fills the hungry, and helps his servants. It's a reversal of fortune according to God's character, according to God's promise. You heard that, didn't you? It's such a surprise, really, to us. Here we've expected Mary and Elizabeth to be at Houston's largest bookstore, sitting behind a skirted table with a stack of their new books, angels, stories from Gabriel, with their autographed copies. And they, with Zacharias, will head off tomorrow to Chicago to appear with Oprah. But no, instead, Mary stands looking upwards, speaking about God's reversal, God's character in the past tense, and she is anticipating the future. She's looking down the road 31 years. I know that because the son that will be born will be a carpenter, and he will preach his first sermon, and I know exactly what he says, and so do you, because it's recorded in Luke 4. Jesus echoes in his inaugural sermon the very same themes in his mother's song. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, freedom for the downtrodden. His first sermon Not what you'd expect an agent, a speaking agent today would to advise. I want you to identify with the largest amount of followers. I want you to get some important people behind you. I'm talking about politicians and people with money. Have a prayer breakfast for Caesar and Pilate, and then we'll tack up the Ten Commandments on a Roman colonnade. That's not the advice that Jesus follows. It's just the opposite. Jesus begins by siding with the poor and the sinners, offering them deliverance, offering them forgiveness. And before him, 31 years before, Mary is standing on the stage, and she says, what God has done for one individual, God will do for everyone. Mary sets the stage for Jesus' entire ministry, because months after Jesus' first sermon, he's descending from a mountain now in Luke's gospel, and troubled people, troubled people, people who've been ravaged by disease have come to him because they knew he had power. He had power to heal And that's when he taught them the reversal of fortune. He said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. He said, blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. And then he went on to say, woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. This, as well known as it is, still surprises us. But Mary has set the stage and cast all of history from the very beginning all through Jesus' ministry to this moment in time in light of God's reversal of fortunes. The halls of power from Rome to Washington, D.C. to Austin, Texas, have always tempted us, have always allured us. Caesar says you can have access to the glamour and to the power and the authority of government, if you'll just agree to police yourselves and talk about tolerance and privacy and eliminate the radical claims of Jesus, no more talk about the reversal of fortune. It's tempting, it's so tempting. But Mary stays, stands on the stage and she said, this is how God has always acted. And her son will show this is how God acts to this day. God is on the move today appearing to and working with people as he always has. This week, I convened a group of preachers, and one of these preachers is a former student of mine. And he had the audacity to tell his fellows in front of me that all the stuff that he learned in graduate school, and he had seven classes from me probably, all the things I've learned in graduate school, he says, I've pretty much forgotten. Except for one. And that's what he brought up. What he brought up was the day that I had been with a group of other faculty and administrators, and we had a guest come in, and the guest came to make a contribution to the seminary. He had a $10,000 $10, in cash that he was going to give, and he put the $10,000 in 10 different envelopes, $1,000 in each envelope, $100, 10 $100 bills in each, in each one of the envelopes. And he said... I'd like 10 volunteers from this group to give this money away. I've got $10,000. I want you to give it away. He said, well, all I want you to do, you can't give it to yourself (laughs) and you can't give it to your kids, can't give it to relatives. You got to give it to somebody whom you perceive to be in great need. And all I want you to do is to write down how it feels when you give that money away and what you did when you gave that money away. Can't give them the cash. You've got to Buy something for them that will help them pay for their electric bill, do something. I volunteered. I went up and got a thousand, one of the envelopes filled with $1,000. And that afternoon, I met with the class. And I gave them the instructions that had been given to me. You've got to disperse with this money, each person, all 10 students, each one got $100. You've got to do something with it. You've got to give it away. You can't give it to yourself, can't give it to yourself. Have to give to somebody in need. And then write down what you did and how it felt when you gave it. And they all did, and I shipped the material back to the person that had given us the money. It's probably the best use of $10,000 that a person could do. And that's the one thing that the student remembered from all those hundreds and hundreds of hours and all those books and all those essays that he had written. I've heard talk about 1548's glory days, the Prince of Houston state senators, influencers attending, bulging membership, dignitaries, glory days? Or is what Mary said true, that God is on the move today, doing something in our midst today? Mary breaks into the Christmas season with a different perspective, different than anything you'll find in them all. Mary has the Christmas song of the season, but you won't hear it on K Love. You won't hear it on that All Christmas, All the Time station. You can't buy this CD at Target. Mary reminds us from the Salvation Army bucket to how we prepare for Christmas that God is on the move today. It's such a complicated holiday. The message of Christmas more complicated still. But in eight days, it'll be Christmas. And after all, the cousins and aunties and children have opened the gifts and we plan to take down the lawn decorations and dismantle the tree, Mary's song will still be with us, asking us, what will you do? Asking, how will you live? Asking, do you believe in the reversal of fortunes? Christmas, from another perspective, did you hear what Mary said? Sixty years ago, there they all were, grandpa and grandma, my mother, all the relatives, and they're all gone now. They're all gone. But the memory's alive, and the lesson remains that people are more apt to do with Scripture whatever they want to advance their agenda than they are willing to allow God to use Scripture to shape them to advance God's agenda. I said you can't hear it at the mall or on k but there is a song with the original words that contains Mary's message. I hear it on occasion. I'm reminded of it when I hear Nat King Cole. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. Sweet hymns of joy and grateful chorus raise we. Let us all, all within us, praise his holy name. Long lay the world in sin and error pining, till he appeared, and the soul felt its worth, a thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Get up off your knees and hear what Mary's singing. O night divine, O night when Christ was born. O night divine, the night that Christ was born.